We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only, not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. As always, I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me, Simona Falaga. Today is actually kind of the, the start of a mini-series, which we haven't really done. I mean, we've kind of accidentally done it by, you know, mostly doing video game episodes for like the last couple months. Pretty much. I think that, that we're trying to remedy that with uh, putting some uh, some research <laughs> back into the mix. Because, yeah, because I think you just came to me just randomly one afternoon and be like, oh, but what about like do a little mini-series and we cover various time periods like in each episode yeah so here we are i mean one thing about is that it it might be very britain centric we we do apologize but we do spoiler uh, have another mini series planned that will hopefully remedy that so stay tuned for that in a, in a few months time yeah so we are doing what we're calling time warped or at least that's the, the very good title I came up with, because I'm very good at making up titles. And it will be a mini-series where every episode we will be going to different time periods and kind of covering, you know, in general, what zooarchaeology was like for that time period, if that makes sense. Which I guess is an oversimplification, but, you know, you know us. We'll always have our case studies. And it'll just be a really interesting way to kind of look at how the archaeological record changes over time. And today's episode, it will be over a massive period of time. Well, that's the thing. I think the entire miniseries, uh, or especially sort of earlier on, will be a bit of an oversimplification because we're dealing with such, like, large chunks of mm. time, which, of course, you know, they'll get smaller over time. But it's very difficult to then condense all that information in an hour. And especially in uh, today's episode, I mean, we will cover the earlier prehistoric period. <laughs> it's a big, big, big chunk of time because it goes all the way from the late Pleistocene yep. to the early Bronze mm-hmm. Age. So, of course, it will include the Paleolithic, the Mesolithic, the Neolithic, and part of the Bronze Age. The way we're sort of starting off uh, in this huge chunk of time, so we're going from sort of when the first Homo sapiens remains were found in Britain, sort of around uh, 44,000 BP, to the end of the Early Bronze Age, which is what, around 1,000 BC. But again, that's in Britain. Of course, those, these dates will shift uh, across various <laughs> geographical regions. And as I said, you'll notice that, you know, these periods will get shorter and shorter, sort of we leave the realm of prehistory and then delve into history. 
And of course, this is partially because when the written record is present, it's much easier for archaeologists to mark substantial changes within a past population. So to make an example of something that's clearly very close to my heart, <laughs> the Romans abandoning Britain and then several sort of... <laughs> Several Germanic groups are taking their place. If you're playing bingo, there you go, Romans. There's that. I managed to shove it in there in early prehistory. And we have a whole episode about the Roman period coming up, too. So, like, there's really no reason for us to shove the Romans in. And yet, here's Simona doing her due diligence. It's almost become principle now (laughs) that I've got to shove them in there, like, and and for those who are not aware of the running joke, I'm actually not terribly fond of Roman archaeology. I just ended up knowing more about Roman archaeology for reasons beyond my ken. It's your curse. <laughs> of course, you know, like, it, it is going to be quite brief and perhaps mm-hmm. oversimplified. I mean, just to give a very, like, quick overview of the time periods we'll be dealing with, I guess we can divide it into two chunks. So you have anything going up until the Neolithic the start of the Neolithic, we'll see humans living in hunter-gatherer societies primarily, likely moving camps between mm-hmm. seasons. And then from the Neolithic, we see a shift to sedentary, sedentary, <laughs> sedentary, sedentary. Oh, I'm foreign, leave me be. I'm foreign <laughs> to agriculture. And uh, I'm, an, I'm not a native English speaker. Goes, is that true. better? That's true. <laughs> We see a shift for people who don't budge and they will just stay put in a settlement (laughs) and uh, they'll keep livestock. And then, of course, you start seeing uh, domesticated species surfacing, several of which we indeed still see on our farms. While in the Bronze Age, we see a shift from using flintels to those made of copper and its various alloys. Yeah. And the one thing I find really interesting about this particular period, and I guess it's also kind of not accurate to call this a period as it's more of a very expansive, like, piece of time itself, really. But it's really interesting to kind of look at zooarchaeologically because you have all these changes in the flora and fauna of Britain. So kind of, you know, in the early to mid Holocene, you have changes in temperature after that last glaciation period. So you see, you know, in England specifically, the kind of woodland areas replace the original grassland. So as these environments begin to change so dramatically, you end up seeing this pretty big shift in kind of species that are prevalent versus, you know, species that were prevalent prior to that. So it it is really interesting, but there's also the downside of these periods haven't necessarily been at least in comparison to other periods of time uh, in zooarchaeology, there there isn't as much research, it seems like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because I mean, we'll probably get into this later as well. But of course, you know, there would have been a lot less people around. So of course, you know, yeah. the, the evidence would be a lot scarcer just in terms of sheer numbers. Uh, and yeah. also it's just something yeah, that it's not as easy to come across, especially in a country like Britain, where a lot of the archaeology is sort of developer-led. Yes, of course. It's not something that you easily come across through non-destructive methods. There's something that we do have some fairly big sort of research sites that are sort of early prehistoric in nature, 
also because you know a lot of these sites will be for instance cave sites which of course you know uh will not necessarily be a de- developer led uh, <laughs> unless someone wants to build a house on top of a cave which maybe not one of the things that i actually find really interesting about this period we're covering you know the early prehistoric period is that there's so many changes again we are talking about such a huge period of time <laughs> So there is that kind of time for all those changes. But because of the kind of environmental and climate change going on, you get these pretty big changes in the type of flora and fauna in Britain. So you have that last glaciation period. And right after that, you have these pretty significant changes in temperature And what used to be this kind of grassland that covered Britain, especially like northern England, gets kind of replaced by more open woodlands. So you get species that either get pushed in or uh, pushed out of these regions over time. So, yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective for zooarchaeologists. It really is, because in a way, like you can use the animal remains to almost map out these changes in climate. Because you have mm-hmm. certain species that are particularly suited to one or the other climate. So, of course, you know if you yeah. see in sort of on your archaeological site a lot of a uh, sort of species that you'd associate with woodland, such as like wild boar and deer, like it might point to you know like um, a warmer climate. And vice versa. So it's something, actually, for those who are interested, we did talk a little bit about this on our um, Pleistocene Megafauna episode, I think a couple months back. Mm-hmm. So if you want to know more about it, please feel, feel free to check it out. Lots of changes. Yeah. So zooarchaeologically, you have these huge changes that you don't necessarily see in the later periods, because obviously you're not really seeing huge differences in, again, the environment and climate. Obviously, we have massive changes coming up because of human-induced activities. Obviously, once we get to talking about the Romans or once Simona gets to talking about the Romans (laughs) in a later episode in this mini-series, we're going to have lots to talk about or to kind of re-talk about because I feel like we've talked about this a lot in terms of introductions, Romans bringing over whatever they want, all the other fun stuff. Now, who's mentioning the Romans all the time? I'll just say it. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's a brand now. We have to t- mention the Romans. Abs- Otherwise, our fans, our many dozen of fans will be upset. <laughs> but... Yeah, because I guess like, uh, most of the changes will be sort of uh, man-made for the most part in terms of deforestation and sort of, yeah, introductions yeah. and extinctions. I mean, you do have some climatic changes, but I think comparatively that they're not as stark... As uh, we'd see sort of earlier on, but again, we have much smaller chunks of time to work with. I mean, like you do have yeah. talks, you know, of a mini ice age in the medieval period, and I believe I think when the Romans occupied Britain, like it was slightly warmer, and then sort of like that yeah. warmer climate was uh, replaced by you know a slightly like colder and wetter climate, but of course not to the same extent <laughs> of you know a glacial interglacial. It's just a, it comparatively yeah, it's a very, very small fluctuation in um, climate. And of course, I guess uh, uh, now we're heading back towards a warmer stage again. But again, that's mostly man-made. <laughs> so 
Well, then there is a reason why there's talks of like uh, of sort of relabeling sort of these past like thousands of years uh, as Anthropocene as opposed to Holocene, because uh, or Cthulhu scene. Um, I mean, yeah. The way things are going, why not? Surely, sure. That's more of a post-humanist, I think, approach. But yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I think Zoarks in particular. I remember going to a conference a couple of years ago where that was like one of the main questions: is when does the Anthropocene start? Uh, is it when you know chickens are getting domesticated? Is it? Uh, there's like a whole other, like a, a whole list of things. And me being someone who works in the later prehistoric period, I was just like, ah, I, d- I don't care. <laughs> um, but I guess, again, with that, uh, it's difficult to sort of use the, to get, you know, a blanket date that would cover the entire yeah. planet because there's a very sort of stark differences geographically. So, of course, you know, if you're talking... And again, like I don't necessarily have any facts to support this. I mean, just it's just a personal opinion. I mean, if you take Britain maybe as an example, is I would put it down sort of like the late Neolithic or the Bronze Age, where sort of like the first mass deforestation happens. So that's sort of like one of the mm-hmm. first times you see like a very big impact. Because you know you get yeah. domestication a little bit earlier on, sort of like you know in the um, Paleolithic and Mesolithic. And of course, you get humans yeah. you know, actively hunting wild species. But of course, you know, it was to such a smaller scale because there were so much fewer of us that it wouldn't have had necessarily a, a massive impact. But then again, also, there is a, also you know, theories out there that a lot of the animals, sort of like the late Pleistocene animals, were hunted to extinction by humans. Mm, yeah, so true. could that be yeah. a date as well? Because like uh, with humans potentially being one of the many factors behind one of the big extinction events, even though of course that's another sort of kettle of fish in a way, because there's a lot of theories going around because humans were probably overhunting these animals in some places, but there's a lot of climatic factors. It's just that the list is endless. Again, it's difficult to just pin it down to one thing. Yeah, it's, you can't really do it in a vacuum. There are many factors. And I think that's kind of going to be a running theme in this mini series is, you know, all the period names, all of these, they are very arbitrary at the end of the day. I think that that's the thing, actually. It's a good um, way to follow up because I think it's probably a disclaimer that's going to go on every single episode on the mini series because yep. you'll, you'll hear us <laughs> using these terms, you know, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Of course, you know, it is very arbitrary because we're basically deciding, oh, this chunk of time from exactly this year to exactly this year is yeah. the Iron Age because <laughs> they just, um, you know, people just rocked up in the 700 BC if we're talking about Britain yep. saying, okay, no more of that copper stuff, Iron we do iron. We've just discovered this. Iron is brilliant. Everything is done in iron now. But, you know, it is, it is yeah. very arbitrary. Uh, or, you know, like in the Neolithic, you start seeing a shift of farming. Is You know, like the first year of the Neolithic period, everyone, oh, all these species were being domesticated <laughs> overnight. Let's farm the land. But these changes wouldn't have happened overnight. They wouldn't have happened in the same time frame, in sort of the various geographical locations, it's much like when we're talking about domestication. In a way, it's not yeah. like okay, uh, cattle was domesticated in the Near East just overnight, and aurochs just turn into a cattle in a field the following day. But in a way, like it is useful to use these terms because, of course, if I tell you yeah. uh, this site 
dates back to the Mesolithic period, you know exactly which time range I'm talking about. Yeah. But it's just, you know, just to um, stress <laughs> several times over that, of course, it is very arbitrary and you, we need to bear that in mind. We don't want people to yell at us. You know, this is our disclaimer. We'll, we'll keep saying it. And I mean, that's like also just kind of something in general with archaeology. A lot of the, not that the time periods are arbitrary, but, you know, we're ballparking a lot of times with the time period, especially when we date things, much older things. So, you know, it's just, it's a nice kind of way to con- to compartmentalize the sort of similarities in this particular time period. But there's always a bit of a, you know, disclaimer it's just for, for that. ease of um, yeah. discussion. Because again, as course, I say, yes. Bronze Age, most people will know sort of what period we're talking about because there would have been a lot of transition. So, of course, leading up to the Bronze Age, people were probably already using <laughs> copper and its alloys. But I guess it's once it yeah. becomes very prevalent and widespread that, I guess, in times of yore, they went, okay, this is the Bronze Age. I get it. <laughs> But while we muse on that, I think we'll take a break. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code ANIMALS. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5hourenergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. And we are back with Archeo Animals, and this is the first episode of a little mini-series we're calling Time Warped, where we're kind of just breaking down zoo archaeology by period. And right now, we're kind of doing a lot of periods at once as part of the early prehistoric. Well, essentially, yeah, because as we discussed earlier, you'll see this uh, periods getting uh, smaller and smaller over time. But I guess um, <laughs> usually the less we know about them, the larger the chunk of time is, seems to be the trend here. Yeah, but we can kind of divide this big like period of time into, you know, two kind of smaller Ish, ones. because it's you know? still... Quite large. Oh, yeah. But, you know, smaller than Lots it was of before. time, because, of course, you know, in the, in the early prehistoric, you get, of course, the, the Paleolithic, which is, um, I, th- I believe in the profession, is just called Hunter-Gatherer Central. 
And then we have the Mesolithic, yeah. which is still hunter-gatherer central. And then uh, <laughs> you see the Neolithic, when again, overnight, people just left their home and saw that an aurochs had turned into a cat into a cow in the middle of their field and went, oh, yep. farming. Yeah, exactly what happens. What happened. <laughs> and I believe the early Bronze Age as well will be part of the early prehistoric yeah. period. So it's basically from, yeah, I think we're going by the first human remains discovered in Britain at least, so 44,000 mm. years ago or thereabouts, up to the end of the early Bronze Age, which I believe is 1,000 BC. It's, <laughs> it's a good 43,000 yeah, but you know, again, if we break it up into these kind of two main chunks, it's it's not as bad, right? <laughs> yes, I think we're probably going to divide them in a way that I guess we'll cover. So the Paleolithic up until the end of the Mesolithic, because, you know, what both have in common is, uh, you know, like mainly consisting of sort of hunter-gatherer societies. And then we can yeah. put together the Neolithic up to the end of the early Bronze Age for sort of, I guess, the farming phases, because that's in sort of these two chunks where we'll see most of the shift in species represented in the archaeological record. Yeah. So we'll do that. And I'll put my phone on silent too. <laughs> Good job. Anyway, so looking at this first chunk, the Paleolithic to the end of the Mesolithic, kind of difficult to talk about, huh? Because we uh, still don't know that much about it. No, because it's, I guess we don't have as much evidence of it. I mean, of course, the, the main one that encompasses the entire prehistoric period is if you don't have a written record, I mean, you can gain some inference from the evidence that you find, but of course the written record adds the extra, like, as, but why? The so like that extra depth is not there, of course. But as yeah. we said, like, we don't have as much material evidence either uh, in terms of like, um, you know, the, there's not as much work done sort of concerning these time periods in comparison to other periods, of course, you know, like it is changing. But one of the main reasons that I can think of is that, of course, agricultural societies would leave what we call features dug into the soil horizon. Yep. So, you know, they'll have, you know, all the agricultural related things, they'll have their drainage ditches and such. And these tend to be a lot easier to identify through non destructive methods. So, in a way, even if you're not going to mm -hmm. dig it, there are ways in which you can survey. They can carry out a survey and think, oh, look, there is a later Iron Age settlement in this area. Because the, the LIDAR uh, or just, like you know, that, magnetometry, the... like there's a, uh, there's several. Don't understand them. <laughs> Can't have no, no, nothing to add to it because it's, it's like magic to me at this point. <laughs> the archaeology wizards. <laughs> the archaeology wizards who like do the geomag stuff, and then I just sit there going, I have no idea what that is. I don't understand anything you're saying. That's why <laughs> archaeology, in a way, is so specialized. So, even within the field of archaeology, yep. you'd have people, you know, they're specialized in the, the most varied of things, going from, you know, magnetometry survey to like ceramic building material or like metalworking slag. The, 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 Absolutely exactly. different language There is a me. wizard for everything. <laughs> but that, which makes yep. you, you know, the animal bone wizard. Um, yeah, that's us. The animal bone necromancers um, or something. I don't know. You know, like going back to sort of like, you know, the, the archaeological features, 
again, like, yeah. it, it does make it easier to sort of pinpoint where the settlement or like or the archaeological activity is. Well, a lot of early prehistoric remains, especially pre-farming, will not be sort of stratified in the same way because they're not within sort of formal yeah. features. And um, the main example that comes to mind is sort of a, a flint scatter where people sort of in the early prehistoric period would have worked a flint to make their tools of weaponry of, you know, whatever they wanted to make with it. And, uh, you know, all the debris would be left sort of on the surface. They're not within a feature. They're not within a pit or anything. They're just scattered over the surface and then covered with soil over time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in a way, finding sort of uh, this type of archaeological activity is what I call almost like archaeology bingo, because you never quite know where they're going to <laughs> pop up. And so like, you do still get like settlements and camps, but again, there's not, because those will leave uh, evidence in the ground. Because if, if you're setting a structure, because you'll have your posts, your structural posts going in the ground. So yeah. usually the wood doesn't get preserved. We're way too damp a climate for that in britain at least but you will get the postal yeah we love postals <laughs> let, let, we love let, postals not, <laughs> can have a bonus let's episode postals <laughs> but again we won't find as many of them also because again a lot less people and a lot less settlements so again <laughs> in a country mm. where all the archaeologist developer led you're not necessarily gonna find not you know really. this settlement in like up on a hill on all these weird and wonderful places. But so, some do exist that have been sort of intensively studied, of course, Star Car being the major one, which we will cover in one of the case studies yes. later on. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's difficult. These early, especially these early periods, it is very difficult to talk about because of these kind of gaps that, as you said, are partially just, you know, we haven't really done as much research, but also partially it is just really difficult to find any of these things. I mean, what we do have and what other archaeologists have kind of developed in terms of interpretation is extremely impressive for how little we have materially. But we do... Sorry, it must be quite daunting to sort of like as interesting as it is because of course you've got so little evidence to work by so really like hats off for like sort of all the early prehistorians that sort of in spite of sort of like the relative lack yeah. of evidence do manage to like produce some like fantastic pieces of work and research so yeah well i mean we'll talk about it in the case studies but i had to a brief brush with early prehistoric and it is extremely stressful to to, to take on but what we do know is, you know, the, we have kind of a general idea of what the prevalent craft industries were, which is basically your hunting and your fishing. You know, we're not necessarily seeing what we see as we enter the Neolithic, which is that shift into farming and kind of developing the industries that will branch out into what we see later on. And as such, you don't really, I feel like species wise, you know, we're obviously not seeing domesticates yet. I mean, yes and no, in a way, because I believe is it. Um, well, yeah. Mesolithic, <laughs> I think we have, uh, well, at least in Britain, is when we start seeing dogs or what will eventually be dogs, <laughs> if that makes sense. Because I think we have Paleolithic evidence of dogs elsewhere, just not in Britain. Yeah, it's it's very dogs is weird because this is obviously a period where we are 
in that kind of transition period with domesticates for dogs. They are, you know, they're de- we're developing the, those relationships. Dogs are becoming what we obviously understand as dogs. And it's it's a weird period of time of kind of like, you know, identifying what is a dog and what is not, you know, what's like the mid period kind of like semi-feral dog, which I think is the case sometimes. And the only dog example that I was able to find that was definitely from Mesolithic Britain was the canine tooth found at Blickmead, which is a site near Stonehenge. And they Archaeologists have been using it to kind of look at diet and migration because there's just been a lack of human remains. And that makes sense, obviously, because of the relationship between a domesticated dog and a human, they would have kind of a similar diet, which is extremely smart move on them. But there doesn't seem to be as many dog remains in Mesolithic Britain. And I guess it's also, I guess, where do you start calling them dogs? Because again, well, well, it doesn't yeah. just apply to dog. Again, it's back to the example of like Neolithic farmer <laughs> leaves his house and finds like an aurochs has turned into a cow overnight. You know, like domestication of dogs, again, took place over sort of a vast geographical area. So in several geographical areas at different time periods, and you would have taken a very long time to go from your wolf yep. to dog Again, like um, sort of making reference to that internet joke of like, oh, I'll get close to these humans. What could possibly go wrong with them? Bam, chihuahua. <laughs> yeah, no, but it is very interesting. It's, it is just very difficult. I mean, again, we'll, we'll talk about it in the case studies, but it's very hard to work in this time period and, and try to be kind of concrete about things. Because the, the truth is, it's a very weird kind of transition period for a lot of different things. You know, yeah, I guess, yeah, of course, aside from domesticates, of course, you'll get uh, your wild mammals, which are regularly hunted. And I should expect, you know, you'll find several species of deer or rocks, of course, you'll find a variety of canids, your sort of dogs slash wolf dogs, but also, you know, like just your standard wolf and foxes, you get lagomorphs. So, because in the case of Britain, it would just be hares, as the rabbits mm-hmm. are not going to be around for quite a few thousand years, but of course elsewhere, probably rabbits as well. Mustelids, so, you know, like pine marten, which again has since gone extinct, but as a, is coming back now. Yeah. And badgers. So again, like badgers, I'm not sure whether they're necessarily eaten, because I don't think it's a, it's a very healthy thing to eat badger. <laughs> But they would have probably, I guess, similar to other time periods, they would have been used for pelts and leather. Yeah. So that, that's common to several time periods, even like also up to the Saxon periods, you do find evidence of like badger being like, again, used for pelts. Then you do get a fair amount of fish. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, well, I, just, I, just mentioned, I just mentioned fish and all I saw was like some paws reaching for me from below. Because like bastard decided to stretch using sort of like my um, desk as a surface, and so these two paws sticking out, and it was a bit confusing. Bastard, Simona's cat. Just for any listeners who don't who don't know the in jokes, but I mean, yeah, you know, you get your fish. Your, I mean, this is something we I think we specifically see as we move up north to you know Scotland, the Northern Isles. They're utilizing marine sources for subsistence you have your salmon which i was actually surprised that salmon apparently being very prevalent in some mesolithic sites in britain 
You have your marine resources, cod, save, haddock, pollock, and then those sea mammals, uh, which were whales, which probably were more used if they were beached, and as well as seals and dolphins, you know, anything that was like washing up, understandably, was probably scavenged and eaten. And your birds, you know, water dwelling, birds, cranes, geese, all the other fun stuff. No, no domestic fowl yet. <laughs> Not yet, no. I was wondering, because in terms of products, a lot of these species would be hunted or scavengers for meat. But in terms yeah. of, well, and leather. But in terms of like of other, not quite industries, but like other uses, like um, are you aware of any evidence, for instance, with whales, whether they were used to produce sort of oil for like lighting? I haven't seen anything. Obviously, especially the Northern Isles, you see material evidence for oil production moving to the later prehistoric, especially like the Iron Age, but. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the stuff about whales I found was more of a kind of an inference because we were finding some whale remains on mesolithic sites. So they were most likely eating them, but I haven't really seen any evidence if they were actually working the bone or producing oil from the remains themselves. I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously possible, but nothing really concrete so far. No, that's fair. Because the main feeling would be that, uh, of course, that whale bone sort of would have been worked or put sort of yeah. in settlements because of course if you if you're just walking down the beach and you see sort of a whale carcass you know the the size of it yeah do, do you know what i mean like you think like oh that that's quite cool i'm gonna do something with it put it in my settlement yeah i mean most likely i can imagine that they were using whale bone for building you know small settlement camp encampments because obviously in the niles that was a practice that was used you know beyond the Iron Age and for obvious reasons those bones are huge so uh, you know you, you pop a rib bone over and you have yourself a nice little tent uh, or at least the backbone of a tent but yeah I mean again we don't really see that kind of I think workmanship as much as until we get into our next period which is the Neolithic to the early Bronze Age because yeah, as we've discussed one day in the Near East a farmer left his house and found that an aurochs had turned into a cow um, i hate when you go to sleep as an aurochs and you wake up as a cow oh, relatable feeling like this if you cry every time sunday i'm an aurochs monday i'm a cow mm. um <laughs> but fun. yeah no just jokes aside of course with the neolithic we see we see a shift from sort of hunting and gathering, which, you know, again, doesn't just completely stop. That's still Oh, yeah, of course. But we see a shift to farming. And, of course, that uh, traditionally sort of starts off in the Near East because that seems to be where we got the earliest evidence of it at present. And then sort mm-hmm. of this uh, new farming trend, which I guess it, it, it was a, a fad that definitely stuck because we still do it, um, <laughs> is spread sort of westwards. And you start seeing it sort of coming all the way sort of to Western Europe. Again, like a very, very oversimplified way of putting it, but it gets the idea that because people just start having sort of more permanent camps as opposed to like the seasonal camps that you'd see earlier in the early historic period. Yep. And 
slowly you know, domesticating a variety of species and sort of people becoming more sedentary. Yeah, and one thing that I'm, I'm always interested in, because obviously as archaeologists we're into ritual, uh, what, one really interesting thing as you shift from Neolithic onwards is you start to see what we could call, you know, deposits and ritual rites and things like that are starting to occur more in these domestic spheres rather than in very separate places. Uh, I mean, you know, we're obviously seeing a kind of, you know, emphasis on the domestic as people become more settled. So that kind of makes sense, I guess, in a way. Because I think we we have a lot of examples of that sort of in a variety of sites and like all the ones I can think of, yeah. they're all in Turkey for the most <laughs> yeah. part. And you see yeah, some very interesting cases of sort of like what we believe is there was sort of ritual animal deposition in sort of what would have been sort of the domestic sphere, like within dwellings and such. Yeah. And then, you know, species wise, again, we're kind of seeing similar in in terms of wild animals. We're seeing similar species. But of course, the big thing here is our domestic heads, your goats, your cattle, your sheep, your pigs, all those things. And, you know, we also start seeing as we start finding more worked bones and worked material, things like, you know, red deer become really important during this period for, you know, their antlers, which actually, interesting enough, they weren't necessarily hunted for their antlers. They were usually just collected as they shed their antlers. And, you know, tool making became very important as we focus more on agriculture. Yeah, because I mean, in a way, like, why would you go through, if you're just after the antler, why would you go through all the effort of going like, to hunt <laughs> yourself a deer when you can just slaughter yeah. your own cow, where you can just pick them up off the floor? Because I guess a very a good, a good way uh, now, like, for some reason, the actual terminology has escaped me at present, so maybe you can help me with it. In a way, to, how would you be able to tell whether the deer was hunted or whether the antler was shed? And usually is what you're looking for is like is at the very base of the antler. Yep. So of course you yeah. see sort of that disc with the ramifications shooting off it, which is where sort of the antler would uh, attach to the head. But I forget what it's actually called. I also forget what it's called. Because it's not I, the crown. I'm... The crown is on the exact opposite side of it. It's right at the tip of it in red deer. <laughs> but of course, if you see that sort of more disc with sort of antler sort of ramifications attached to it. It looks a bit like a sun. Yeah, it does. It's how I picture it. Of course, if you see that, that means that the antler has been naturally shed because that's yeah. just literally how it comes off of the deer. Pops right off. Yep. But of course, if that part is not present, then yeah, it would have been uh, forcibly taken off the deer yeah. while it hopefully was already dead. I mean, that's a good way to kind of also wrap up the idea of changing relationships because the other thing we that's really big is that in england we're starting to see deliberate burials of dog remains particularly in the early bronze age so it's this shift not only agriculturally but also this kind of massive shift in the way we relate to animals and i think what we will do at this point is take a break and we will do our case studies to further talk about these relations and whatnot Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome back to Archaeo Animals, where we are talking about the zooarchaeology of the early prehistoric period as part of our new mini-series called Time Warped. We're looking at different periods, all the other stuff. You should know if you were listening. I don't know why anyone would start on the third part, <laughs> but it's case study time. So let's let's just do it. <laughs> Maybe because, uh, you know, like the case studies are the favorite part of our show because we've decided that. Uh, <laughs> yep. No one has actually said it, but I've decided it is the I best think, part of the show. <laughs> I think I can picture people just downloading the episode and putting it straight to par three. Just yeah, case studies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? I'm sure. There's one there's one person out there, probably. <laughs> it's no, I bet you there's like archaeologists maybe who, who go to the third part to see if we actually cover their site. We are going to well, I guess I will start this segment because the first case study we're talking about is my stuff. Ooh, I love talking about me. All other fun stuff. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The funny thing is actually, technically, I could probably talk about my site every single episode. <laughs> just because, not just because I've dedicated, what, four years of my life to doing this as part of my nah. PhD. Nah. <laughs> but also, it is, it just spans like a very long period of time. But in a way, like, I really think you should, because it almost, you, we could, it would be interesting, if anything, even doing like, an entire episode so you can actually see like zoo archaeology so in different time periods, but yeah. all encompassed by the same site. So actually, yeah. that would be really interesting. Yeah, for, for some people, maybe not me. <laughs> just What if I just read my thesis out loud? How long will it take to get through like over 400 pages of work? A couple episodes, right? It's an audiobook now. <laughs> but yeah, no, it is. Um, I mean, that is... One of the things I really like about this site is that originally, it was originally pitched to me as, oh, it's a later prehistoric site. And that one of the things I really like about this site, the Kowsey Caves, which I guess I should name it, is that it takes place in a very long period of time. Its earliest period is early Neolithic, and it is constantly, well, not constantly, it's in use every so often up until the post-medieval. And obviously, we have more modern day stuff because all these archaeologists are running in uh, or falling in, if you're me. Uh, so yeah, there is something there in terms of kind of looking at the differences in time 
but you know, we don't want to bore everyone with it so much, but we will talk about it for this episode, I guess, which hilariously, uh, this is the, the smallest, uh, assemblage I have in this cave is the early prehistoric stuff. But if you'd like to hear a whole it's episode fine. of Kelsey Caves, please do let us know. I'm sure Alex will be mega happy to oblige. I, yeah, I, I mean, I better keep talking about this this cave site that I dedicated four years of my life to. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I've talked about it before in other episodes, because of course I would. But just a, a short recap. So the Kalji Caves are a series of cave sites on the coast of the Moray Firth in northeast Scotland. And it's basically a bunch of very interesting mortuary complex sites. They are human and animal bone assemblages. It's very strange. As I said, it spans a long period of time, the Neolithic to the post-medieval, but what we will focus on in this part of the case studies is the first kind of context that we have, which is the Neolithic and Bronze Age context. So it's basically kind of focused on the animal butchery for utilization. So a lot of the evidence that I was going to say we found, I guess I found, that's weird, uh, is we have evidence of skinning based on the amount of foot bones that we found. There was a, an inordinate amount of foot bones in, among these remains, which you wouldn't necessarily, I think, think of. The other thing I should point out is that these cave sites are so hard to get to, to the point that I had to go to Annie on the first day of excavation because I fell trying to get to these cave sites. So it's just because you like that site so much, you wanted to be just in situ. Yeah, basically, I just I was just smashing my body off of a boulder, hoping <laughs> that I could just get stuck there. But they are very difficult to get to. So when we have these kind of bigger mammals we're not necessarily thinking they just wandered in so you we weren't expecting kind of these smaller bones uh i think at the time when i started working on it the interpretation that we were kind of playing with was you know were these feasting going on because they were clearly disarticulating human bones already in these caves as part of their funerary traditions where they kind of doing the same with the animals and just bringing in parts they need. And so having these smaller bones was a bit of a surprise. And one of the interpretations I was kind of working with was, you know, we were looking at something that was more based in utilization rather than funerary practices or ritual practices because of the, the skinning evidence we had. The meteor parts of bodies were missing in these cave sites. So it seemed like there weren't feasting or consumption occurring in these caves. They could have been taken out, obviously. It, 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 it's very, it's a very difficult site. And uh, one that maybe people shouldn't be doing their first, like their PhD on by themselves. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was very interesting. And the kind of animals we found as well Again, these are the smallest contexts we had out of, you know, in comparison to like the medieval or the Iron Age. But we still had a pretty decent, diverse group of animals represented. So bird-wise, you had great auk, which was a running theme in these caves. There's a lot of great auk 
cormorants, curlews, and then your your gulls and things like that. Mammal-wise, we had sheep and goats. We had a type of pig, which I guess at this time, I think was likely pig, but I guess there could be boar in there. Uh, I think the, the bones that I looked at were most definitely pig and cattle. And then the thing that, the two things that were really interesting were we had canids, which were potentially domesticated, but our ADNA work was kind of lacking. <laughs> I didn't have any good results for that. So I have to just kind of say they're canids. We don't know if they're wolves or if they're domesticated dogs. But again, what we were talking about before, this was this is a weird period in that transition where dogs were becoming more domesticated. So, you know, who knows? They could have been semi-feral, whatever. <laughs> Nothing conclusive, unfortunately. But the one thing that I really wanted to talk about, and it's something we'll talk about in our next case study, is red deer. Red deer were like huge here, not only like in terms of how many red deer there were, but they were they were actually massive. They were so big. We had a red deer mandible that was so big. I remember showing it to one of my supervisors, uh, Julie Bond, who is a zooarchaeologist as well in Scotland. And she was like, that's not, <laughs> that's, that can't be a red deer. It's too big. And it, we ended up having to look at several deer mandibles, including looking at great elk. We had to look at caribou and reindeer <laughs> and but no it's just a massive red deer that were in these caves and one of the really interesting things was we had this really gorgeous cranial vault so like the top of the red deer skull that was just perfectly preserved like that so of course people are like oh is this like star car are there headdresses and unfortunately we didn't really have any evidence of you know cut marks or anything in the same way that star car does which again we'll talk about in a second so you couldn't really say but the fact that it was just like so perfectly preserved and left like that makes you kind of wonder i guess and uh there's also like a lack of non-cranial elements in these caves for red deer so it was likely they were being disarticulated or processed uh elsewhere and the cranial elements were brought wherever likely you know antlers being taken out to maybe use tools ornamentation so yeah red deer big big thing in the neolithic here and like i said we will talk about it in our next case study yeah, which again is um a site that i'm sure we've covered uh numerous times before but it does make for a pretty good sort of representation of um some, well, one of the time periods which we've covered today. And of course, <laughs> as uh, you may have guessed by now, we're talking about Starcar. It's a Mesolithic site in North Yorkshire that was likely to have been occupied seasonally for several hundred years. Because being Mesolithic period, it dates to around 9000 BCE. Because it's very give or take. Because it's famous pretty much worldwide because of its incredible preservation, which of course is all thanks to yep. peat deposits. For those who are not very familiar with peat deposits, uh, it's basically the same conditions thanks to which we've been able to recover uh, the famous bog buddies. Yeah. That you sort of find, I guess, mostly in the later prehistoric period around sort of Northern Europe, sort of Britain, Scandinavia and Ireland. It's like an Iron Age type. Um, I always associate with the Iron Age. Uh, I think there's probably more that are outside that period, but I think the bulk of them is more Iron Age. 
I believe so. Yeah. And of course, we know it was a settlement that was occupied, you know, at least seasonally. It's um, it's inferred it might have been sort of the summer mm-hmm. where it was occupied because we have evidence of um, it being like a full-blown sort of settlement because uh, we have evidence of structures in the form of posts. Which, of course, in the Post particular holes. case of Starcar, well, not well, yes and no, because, of course, you know, being oh, yeah. uh, preserved in peat, you have the actual posts. <laughs> You actually have wood. You also have a wooden platform at the edge of at the edge of what used to be a lake. Yeah, but I'm not sure there's any sort of um, conclusive theories about what the deal with that was. Because again, as with a lot of earlier prehistory and later prehistory, for that matter, it's just like prehistory. Why? Why though? Nobody <laughs> knows. Uh, you do get that, especially with some of the mortuary practices. Just but, but why though? Oh, well, that's okay. like my whole my whole PhD thesis is. But why though? And also just, yeah, prehistory is so metal. It rule. It's it's funny because, like, you know, it, it rules. But when I think if you're someone who actively researches it, especially when it gets a bit murky in terms of you don't have as much evidence, it can be very frustrating, for sure. Yeah, because I'm sure, like, a lot of it is, um, well, because they could. I mean, that's, yeah, literally, like, <laughs> it's basically what I used to write, like, my master's thesis, which was more later prehistory. But there's, I think, one of my interpretations of uh, fishing remains was, eh, they probably just collected it because they look cool. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I think in, in most instances, it was probably more sound than uh, it being ritual or a fertility cult. So, you know. Yeah. Usually humans having things essentially the same across time, you yeah. know. Ooh, shiny thing. Something cool. yeah. Ooh, that looks cool. Shiny thing. I- I'm going to bring it back to my settlement. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. But in, yeah, in terms of zooarchaeological remains, there is, of course, you know, evidence of hunting because we're still in the Mesolithic. The transition to farming hasn't quite happened yet. Yeah. So there's evidence of hunting deer, wild boar, aurochs. Oh, that'd be aurochs in the plural. Oh, I actually never thought of what the plural is. Either or, big, scary, not quite cows. Yep. Them. And of course, they were using the remains of these animals also to create weapons, which is almost, it's not ironic, but it's like, oh. Uh, <laughs> as archaeologists have uncovered, uh, about 200 projectiles made out of deer, bone, and antler. So they were definitely making full use of the carcasses. Yeah, and I think, because I ended up using Starcar a lot when I was doing my research, even though Starcar is Mesolithic and my, you know, the Kalsey Caves don't really start in terms of the archaeological record, doesn't really start until the early Neolithic. There, I feel like there must be a bit of crossover in, you know, the importance of red deer, per se. And there's actually, I only found it the other day, so not early enough to add it to our notes, but there's been a there's been a, a blog post going around of a zoo archaeologist kind of talking about you know the the importance of the red deer in the Mesolithic, and I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of you know how much of that was probably carried over into the Neolithic still, even though we had all these massive shifts in practice because of the rise of agriculture. You know what I mean? Well, and of course, if it's uh, so, the evidence is early Neolithic. You'd have still been in that transitional yeah, period, of course. And again, going on the fact that it's an assumption that you know, like everyone became a farmer overnight. <laughs> yeah, they woke uh, up. I mean, it's highly <laughs> unlikely that as soon as sort of the Neolithic period formally starts, you would have seen 
sort of farming across the board, especially I guess like from the little I know about cow sea caves, it tends to be sort of quite remote. Yeah. In Scotland, it's quite, uh, you know, that area you're saying was quite difficult to access. So I'm not sure like whether that would have been sort of prime farmland. Yeah, no, there's areas, there's areas in the world that have uh, never and still aren't suited to farming. So communities over there still probably do rely more on hunting and gathering just because of the climatic and the the Mm -hmm. geology of the area is just not suited for farming in that particular landscape. Yes, that, that arbitrary nature that we talked about, that again is going to be a very prevalent theme, I think, in this mini series. In that, you know, we, even though we do use these categories for ease of discussion and because, you know, for the most part, a lot of these sites tend to fall in those kind of characteristics that they're very similar enough to kind of say this is that period. But, you know, we're talking about how maybe necessarily you're not seeing the same emphasis on agriculture as other sites in the Neolithic. Uh, again, which, which you just need to keep in your head. And that's why archaeology is simultaneously very interesting and very frustrating. Yeah, because also like, it's just the fact that in, in some areas of the world, it's just like a, a, a farming system the way we know it just doesn't yeah. quite work as well. It just it, You've got to work with your landscape. And of course, certain domesticates will be better suited to certain types of landscapes. Like, for example, where I'm from, I mean, like taking Britain, for example, you know, being a lot of sort of grassland and pastures, there is an inordinate amount of sheep being kept at the expense of goat. You don't tend to find goat as much. Where I'm from, almost the bulk of it is goat because it being quite mountainous, mountainous, uh, herding goats makes a lot more sense than keeping sheep because the sheep will probably just fall off a cliff. Um, Let's face it. Anyway... I mean, we could we could talk about that for a whole episode, I feel like, but... Were sheep falling off cliffs? Yeah, it's funny. You know, the, the thing that I kind of mentioned about Starcar before that we have to talk about, because I think, I would argue it's what it's most known for, are the Starcar headdresses. I thought, yeah, I thought I'd leave it to you because you said oh, you I mean, really yeah. like the headdresses. I do love the, the headdresses because they are, like, gorgeous. They, they're so well-preserved. To the point that you can cut, you can see, you know, the cut marks that were made just to just to cut around the cranial vault to make sure that it was the right, you know, amount. The fact that they took care to actually cut the antlers, trim them down because it would be too top heavy. They even had these holes that they weren't necessarily drilled in. They were probably just like perforated carefully uh, that was likely to help attach it to a human head because you know obviously that's the main interpretation of these cranial vaults that they found or the frontlets i think that what they refer to them as because of the antler that's still attached to it is that they were likely worn on the head of course, this kind of goes into two other interpretations where where they wore on, worn on the head as part of, you guessed it, ritual, uh, <laughs> as a, like a, a ritual costume, or were they hunting disguises to help hunt red deer? Both of which, you know, obviously, I don't think we'll necessarily ever really find conclusive evidence to that until we, you know, maybe when we get time travel, we could see them do it, but... You know, and, and I mean, it's also like the very simplistic, I guess, interpretation of it just being a trophy that's hung up yeah, somewhere, that is and true the holes well. are there to hang it up. Because I guess a lot of the, 
um, the deer skull trophies that you know you're seeing antique shops and such it does tend to be just a cranial bolt and the antler yeah a lot of it i guess the only evidence against that is the fact that they're trimming the antlers down but again it could be just because it's easier to hang it up that way as well there's also it's interesting to note that although they're mostly stags because of the antler being present there is uh i think at least one cranial vault that is from a female which is actually the case in the calcy caves the cranial vault that we had was a female as well so it's they're so cool and very interesting and again it's an interesting to look at not only because we're you know we're pre-neolithic we're pre-farming and yet we still have these very close kind of relations with animals and and you know that that will be the fun thing moving forward in seeing how these relations kind of change but I think we're we're just about ready to wrap up. Yeah. So like, yeah, the um, the early prehistoric period is finished. It's over. It's it, done. It, it's been done. We it's move on. Done. We move on next episode. Onto onto just as weird prehistory. Again, prehistoric people just doing prehistoric people things. Yep. As as you do. As always, you know, we are on Twitter at Archeo Animals. We obviously have a Facebook page as well, also at Archeo Animals. You can like and subscribe and all the other fun stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Always feel free to message us on Twitter or whatever if you have an idea for another episode. We love getting listener requests, things like that. Uh, send us your fan art because I have a small collection on Instagram of people's fan art, which is still wild. People do. And uh, I think that's it. Oh, and if you've got any complaints, direct them to Tristan. Yes, please send them to our producer. Yeah, all the hate us. mail. Just, just send it to him. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 